How are you doing? Hi, this is Michael Waits, and welcome back to the Asia Tech Podcast. Today, we are joined by Lars Yankovsky. Did I get that right? Yeah. Awesome. The founder of NFQ Asia. Lars, thank you so much for coming all the way to the Red Hill offices in Singapore to record. I really appreciate it. How are you? Well, I'm really good, and uh, it's great sitting here with you and getting the chance to speak. I am always amazed like how great people sound when they're using great microphones. You have a super voice, by the way. Have people? I'm sure people have told you that before, no? I don't know. Maybe I don't know. Pe people told me that I sing decent in the karaoke bar, but <laughs> yeah, this that is I don't not believe. the same. <laughs> no, this I do not believe. Well, it may be true, but I don't know. Sometimes in the karaoke bar, there's a lot of other influences there that may not be true here. Anyway, um, can we get a little bit of your background just for some context? Oh, yeah, certainly. So I'm, I'm old. I'm old, <laughs> whatever that, Let's wait, start with that. wait a second though, how old are you? I'm 53 in a couple of weeks. So I always like to say this, how old am I then? I know, I, I want to I flatter you. So. <laughs> no, don't flatter me, don't do that. <laughs> so I always, to protect against unnecessary flattery, I always say, how old do you think I am, 70, 80? Just to kind of set the bar somewhere different. Nah, you're around my age. Yeah, 50, I'll be 57 in a few days actually. Yeah, there you go. Fair enough. Anyway, so we start with old, but what else do we have? Yeah. So, um, I've been uh, I've been I've been born actually during the moon landing, the Apollo mission. Uh, so my mom could could see them landing, and when they were flying back, she popped me out. So oh. that's how old I am. So what year? Do you remember what? So you were born during the moon landing. What year was that? If you're 53, it was four. I was four years 69. old. 69. 69. Mm. I remember. I think this is one of those memories I have where I don't know if. I was sitting in this little room in my parents' house in Hull, Massachusetts, actually watching it on TV, which I'm sure Americans were doing on this black and white television. Like, I can still see it. But I don't know if I was actually there or if I just heard the story about it. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Anyway, go ahead. Well, okay. Anyway, I just gave you a little bit of background because maybe this explains why I'm a real nerd. So when I grew up, I was one of these kids uh, having the Commodore 64 Did hacking you? games, yeah, yeah, uh, and um, I don't know. I had a real big passion for for uh, computers, for software development. I started coding with like professional coding, kind of like with 14. I wrote some software for my school. Really? Yeah. What language were you writing in back then? Well, that was um, well for the school. It was basic, basic. But, yeah, but then I moved forward uh, pretty quickly to to C and C plus plus. Did you really? Yeah, I did. Yeah. Wow. So no, because because basic is obviously pretty basic, but yeah. C is like a real language. Yeah, but I just also told you there was hacking games, which is an assembler. Yeah, so an this assembly is a language. Yeah. This is this is low level. Very low level. Yeah, anyway, so anyway, so I I I actually had a big passion. For, for IT, for software development, and um, started my career as a software developer. Wow, I think professionally my first paid job, 1993. So I'm doing this like now. Almost 30 years. Almost 30 years, yeah. Anyhow, so I very quickly realized that I'm not a person who really likes to have a boss. I was going to ask you. I was yeah. going to ask you. Go ahead. So I founded my first company in 1997. Okay. I had no clue what I'm doing. Uh, we did software development for all the cool startups and the cool companies during the dot-com bubble. And because I had no clue what I'm doing, 2000, when the bubble burst, my company also imploded. But what does that mean? So I want to back up just a little bit. Like I knew for the 20 years that I was working at Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs that I was not happy working for somebody else. But it didn't feel like to me there was a way out. When you first started writing software professionally, right? You said your first paycheck was in 1993. Were you, did you go get a job somewhere? I did, yeah. You did, but did you know then, were you just like, oh, I can't do this for that long. I think I might die kind of thing. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was kind of feeling. And I really, I'm always, I'm a driven person. and I really want to prove myself that I can do things and right. I want to. So, and I, I myself also, the biggest criticizer of myself. Of myself, so, yeah, yeah, right. yeah. And when you left, did you leave like a little bit in a huff? Do you know what I mean? Like, I'm out of here. Or was it like a quiet thing where like, you know what, I think it's better for both of us if I just don't work here. No, well, I so I, 
I don't know. I think I come from a, my father and my grandfather. They were really good businessmen. I think I heard from my father. I never met my grandfather, but I think right. he was a fence, uh, like dealing with gray area stuff during the war. So let's talk about what a fence is. Yeah. Can you can you explain what that is? It's like all, it's like running your own personal pawn shop in a way. Yeah, right. Correct. In other words, correct. like. I need some money. I have a thing. I sell that thing to you, and I find somebody else on the other side who can buy it back, or I wait until you come back and I sell it to yeah, you at a slightly of. higher price. Yeah. So here's what's funny: my mother's father did the same thing. <laughs> That's why I'm asking, <laughs> and I've never been able to say this out loud before. Not not for any reason, but just because there was never a chance. But I love this idea, and I never knew what to call my grandfather. But yeah, offense. That's the mm. right. That's the right word. Sorry. Go ahead. There you go. Yeah. So, and I think I I got some. I don't know. I, I like to haggle, I like to deal, and I got it with my mother's milk or whatever. And I'm actually, so when I left my, my second job, actually, uh, I, w I was the lead developer in a bigger uh, agency, which is still around. Uh, we did really, really interesting stuff. For example, what I personally coded was the prototype of the BMW iDrive. So did you really? I did, yes, I did. Yeah, but it was the prototype. So you know the way it works with cars; they show around on car shows, yep, yep. and then in the end, uh, what is ending in the in the uh, series production? This is not uh, anything. Right. I mean, it's true for the car itself. Yeah. As a, as I'm sure for the software too. Sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. So so actually, so I left on really good terms, and I took um, a couple of uh, contracts. So I actually subcontracted all that. So I did my own company, and then worked for my former employer okay that's cool yeah i don't think i could have done that <laughs> and that's why i asked that question right because there's two ways to do it the one way is i'm going to go out on my own but i know the way this works why don't we just why don't i just work for you but i can work for you on my terms in a way right mm -hmm. and the other is like i'm out of here and i'm never dealing with you people again your way is the better way for sure yeah well but as i said like we were three three engineers we we didn't really know what we we're doing besides coding. So right. commercially, we made a couple of mistakes, and then uh, during the dot-com bubble, the things exploded. But the interesting to give you a little bit more background. So when I, so during the dot-com bubble, it was incredibly difficult to find software developers. I had like 21 years old people guys sitting there who asked like 20,000 grand or more a month. A month? A month, which is crazy, yeah. It back was then, for sure. Back then, it was crazy times. So so I knew somebody who knew somebody from Lithuania. So I opened my own uh, like development offshore center in Lithuania, which is interesting. If you think back, Lithuania became independent in 1999. So it was, I was there very early, very early. And um, it was really wild, wild east going there. But what does that mean? I mean, was Lithuania one of these sort of small countries that was part of the Soviet Union Correct. so that their technical education was actually quite good? I'm guessing, right? I'm asking really more than anything. So then when they did get their independence in 1999, wow, that took a while. Mm. Yeah, because yeah, when did the Berlin Wall go down? I, mean, I didn't remember. 89, 89, yeah. yeah. It yeah. was still Gorbachev who actually made it possible, if I recall it correctly. I'm just, yeah, I can't remember yeah. back that far. But that's interesting. But when you went to Lithuania, like today, that would be normal and nobody would think anything mm. of it. But when you did it then, were there other companies that were actually outsourcing stuff or hiring people? No, we were really dev? early mover. Yeah. And so I, so we started and built our own development center with really great people. And some of these people are still working for us since then. Can you believe that? Well, that's almost 25 years. Yeah. Yeah. Not many, but some. No, but still, that it says a lot about you and your business partners if you can maintain relationships, particularly with software developers, mm. over that long period of time, right? Because there's a ton of great work to do out, out there now and in the interim as well. Yeah. And like just the fact that they didn't move to Silicon Valley or get hired by Google or something like that means you must be doing something different. No? I hope so. <laughs> I try to. And not only different, but better. But that's yeah. a that's a different topic. Just so let me finish the story quickly. Go ahead. So so when my company imploded in two thousand, so my friend Wolfgang, who was uh, a client of mine actually back uh -huh. then, he took over uh, kind of the assets in Lithuania, and that was the like the birth point of NFQ. So NFQ is was born out of the ruins of my company around 2000 uh it's a little bit shady because there was an in-between company officially is, i think it was 2022 so this is where we started and with nfq do you remember the feeling 
Do you remember the feeling of being inside that bubble? That idea that like we just can't hire enough people. We there's so much work out there to do. The world seems to be like on fire, and everything is so good. Michael, Michael, I don't need to remember. This is now. I know, but I want to go back then because I want to make an equivalency to now as well, right? Mm -hmm. Because there was a there was an explosion or an implosion, right? We saw it happen, and we saw it happen in in my business multiple times, right? There are financial crises every ten years, and you kind of know they're coming, but you don't know exactly when. But back then, at least in my lifetime, we've already established we're close to the same age. It wasn't clear that that dot-com bubble was a bubble at the beginning. Sure, in, by the time we got to 2000 and 2001 and things started getting nutty, we were just like, yeah, okay, this is going to explode. No? No, certainly. So I had a, I had cli I had a client who, who had a launch event with a really big stage, some big, big names. Uh, famous bands they're playing and and famous MC and everything and inviting everybody and then a week later the bubble burst and they couldn't pay my bill and I thought like oh wow that was like my money <laughs> yeah, but that, so but that's what I mean I want to make this point that like sometimes you can be so in the middle of it that you will have like Bono on stage and the next week you can't pay your development team right correct so but everything I believe is cyclical and I think this is one of the benefits of being 56 years old is that things get less scary because they become more clear. Is that fair? I think so, yeah. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. Because you said, you said, okay, we're there now. Yeah. What do you do differently, though, from a planning perspective and even from a hiring perspective to make sure that the same thing that happened back in 2000 doesn't happen today? Well, that's a very good question. So talking about today, I think we are looking at a different crisis. Tell me. Uh, we have, I mean, besides all the recession, the VCs uh, not investing anymore, that, that is certainly something which is hitting a certain industry a lot. Still, in the dot-com, we had a lot of very weird-ass startups who did weird stuff, uh, which wasn't really valuable. Like and what? Now, like what? And now some weird messengers, Napster, things who are really weird, like, I mean, it's not commercially successful. Whereas nowadays, online is clearly a multi-billion dollar business and nobody doubts that. So there's a lot of money to be made. Yeah, so back then, I think what you're talking about, and tell me if I'm wrong, is so pets.com raised over a billion dollars. Then it just blew up, right? It was just gone. And we can talk about why in a second. But there was a delivery company in the United States in New York who did everything on bicycle. And I cannot remember their name to save my life. But the mobile technology didn't exist yet for them to be able to actually facilitate the thing they wanted to do. So it wasn't, you know, you had to go to a desktop to get the order and then somehow maybe get it to a pager. Like, I don't know how they did it. But oh. today it's so different. Sorry, go ahead. No, cer certainly. I mean, it's a, co it's a combination of different things. So Cosmo. That's what I was thinking mm, of. Sorry, okay. go ahead. Yeah, so it's a, it's, it's a combination. I mean, some ideas were really good, but yeah. it was too early yep. because the users were not there yet. Uh, but now, I mean, it's very normal. There's literally not many people without a smartphone on this planet. So you're very used to do everything online. So so the money is there. The money is earned. And that's very different. So even if there is um, a bigger crisis, there will be a lot of profitable companies. And these companies are going to be con profitable also in future. Here's one of my opinions on this. Is that... The time cycle for a recession when I was a kid, right, in the 1970s, felt like it lasted much longer than it does today. And I think part of the reason why is because the flow of information is just so much faster today that even if the recession or any part of an economic cycle or any cycle, frankly, was brewing, few people could see it. So few people could prepare for it. But today, it's like all over the news. Like, If a recession's coming in eight months, everyone's going, it's a recession's coming. You know, bells are ringing everywhere. It's on every kind of news channel, whether it's coming or not. So people kind of know. Before, right, you could literally get fired and you'd just be like, why did that happen? But also the resulting solution to that, whether it's raising interest rates or some other solution to the recession, can also happen faster because information flow is faster. Does that make sense? And does that help you, you think, in disintermediating the impact of a bubble? I don't think there is a bubble which is going to burst. I really don't believe that. We have a lot of inflated valuations on 
on some startups which get devaluated now. A lot of down rounds, people um, letting go 20, 30, 40% of their employees to save costs, to prepare. Right. But they are still profitable companies and they're still providing services who are uh, used and people like it. So the only question is they can't expand mm -hmm. as fast mm -hmm. as they want. They can't go. So all this, all this, it's very different to 2000. Yeah, because it felt like in 2000 that companies just like went away, right? They didn't lay off people. They just shut down. No? Yeah, but because there was all not, not a real business model behind <laughs> yeah, right. But that's the point, though, right? Yeah. And I think this is the point you're trying to make is that today there's a real business model. It itself, though, is just cyclical. So like when... Are we, like, do we have enough people? Do we have the right number of people? Yeah. Yeah. What's the impact on your business per se? Well, <laughs> you should ask me in a year. I mean, I certainly had Fair a couple enough, of though. I had a couple of uh, clients who are startups who had to uh, pull the plug because uh, actually promised investments haven't been deployed. So where the investor signed, and then they're like, "No, I'm not going to give you the money. Sue me." So these things happen nowadays, and this is sad. This is terrible. Yeah, it's terrible. It's really terrible. Yeah. Uh, but on the other hand, you know, we are providing services which is still cheaper than you would, would hire software developers wherever you are in the world. So I, so talking about myself, Go uh, ahead. so maybe going a little bit back. So, so my, my biggest success, my biggest exit was uh, 2010, a flight search engine. I'm a freaking flyer. I like to fly, and I didn't have so much money. So 2007, uh, my partner and I we decided we are launching a flight search engine, something like Kayak, just better for sure because we can do it better. <laughs> because you built it, it must be better. Mm, I, well, <laughs> I wouldn't go that far, but at least I believed it could be better. I understand. So and um, and we built it in 2007. It was right in the middle of the crisis, and what happened 2007 is that people. Um, before they were like, no, I only book my flights on the airline page directly. I don't really look for the price. And then after, when people have not so much money, they're like, maybe I check in the internet and compare prices. Go ahead, because this is interesting. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. So, so as I said, like I, I did a startup where we where we actually help people to save money. Yeah, and it was insanely successful. So it's funny. So we wrote in our business plan, we raised a very small amount of capital. Like I think we raised two, raised two million. We only needed one or something. Good for you. And um, and we wrote in the business plan, we are going to exit to Kayak. And three years later, we did. So we sold to Kayak. Um, is, that, is it public information? Yeah, yeah. Okay, it's so public. I... You can you can look look it up. So we sold to Kayak, and we, we because they tried to beat us on the German market and they couldn't. So then they're like, okay, if you can't beat them, join them. Yeah. So were you, was your software development company at that time building products for other people and building products for yourself? Yes, correct. So the story about NFQ is from my point of view. So I, I founded, I co-founded it, but I was like never really interested in running a dev shop. <laughs> Scalable, scalable products are, are much more interested. So although I'm a co-founder, I was more like a client. I only cared that I have good developers. And then over all the last 20 years, people came to me and they said, hey, Lars, uh, can I also have developer? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, go there to NFQ. But I didn't really care much. Uh, I more cared about that I have good developers. So. so this is an interesting business model though, right? In other words, you're always out there hiring for your own projects anyway. And if there's any slack there, I'm not saying you did this, but I'm just thinking kind of as I'm talking. But if there's any slack, meaning if there are extra developers, you can, if they're good and they should be good because they're there to work for you and build your products, then you should be able to have them hired by other people. Yeah, kind of. A lot of companies do that, but I don't really believe in that. That is scalable. Um, because what other people want, they also want great engineers and they want to keep them fully. So, so what I don't want is like I'm dangling a good engineer in front of their nose and say like, okay, this engineer has some free time, can work a couple of months for you and then later I take him back. That doesn't, that, that doesn't really work. Yeah, sorry, I wasn't suggesting that and I completely understand. What I was saying was you're hiring all these people, but one of the ways if like your projects like get sold, Right, you have all these great engineers, and if you're not working on something today, well, then five of them you can 
hire out to other people. But you can also then hire better, uh, not better, but great people in again because they see that they don't get fired. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I understand. So, okay. So, but that touches on a core of my belief. So, I believe, I believe um, a lot of people do that. They run software development companies. They run agencies. Then they have Slack. They try to develop their own product or they do this and that or start to sell some engineers half-assed to someone else. I don't believe this is successful. You need to be laser focused on what you're doing. And I was laser focused on my company and I really, really didn't care much about how NFQ was doing. I cared about Swudu. We sold, exited to Kayak. I'm, uh, Kayak then said like last, you seem to be a great guy coming over <laughs> right. to do yes. Uh, so I, I kind of like got to be responsible for their worldwide engineering teams. Did you really? Yeah, yeah, and had suddenly this 200 crazy PhD, MIT, Harvard grads, which was interesting because if you come, you know, you grow up in Germany, MIT, and yeah. it's, like, it's like the best of the best. Right, right. And right. then you work with these engineers and you realize, hmm. Mm. It's interesting though, right? Go yeah. ahead, keep going. So, so as software engineers, they're certainly not the best of the best, but what they learn is business thinking and this is i think this is the, the big difference why these universities and also the us globally is so successful because people get trained to think in business and understand how business is whereas in europe or in eastern countries people are more like yeah i know this technology really really good i'm the best engineers but they have no clue about how business works and in the end and now that's the sad truth. What makes uh, a company successful is not if you have the best tech, but if you have the best business. Yeah, I mean, there the the landscape of businesses that were developed with better tech is littered with dead companies that just didn't have the right business sense. Correct. Right, but had better technology. So I tend to say that, um, like having a good technology is is absolute important for being a successful startup but it contributes maybe 15 to 20 percent to the success the other way around if your tech doesn't work at all for sure it you can't scale but i mean if you look at companies like uh, company builders like rocket internet for example right and others they um they always start like fake it yeah, they tell you, I don't know, we have an AI-powered whatever service, and in the end, it's like 200 interns manually hacking it. Yes. And they build a proof of concept if the business model works, and only if it works, then they invest into the IT. And I think this is the smart way. Yeah, I don't disagree with you at all, actually. I mean, I, I look around the landscape, not just in Southeast Asia, where I've lived for the past, well, in Asia, where I've lived for the past 30 years, but all over the world and say, Whenever anybody tells you it's AI powered, and it's just an example, right? But it's a metaphor for everything else. There are 200 interns in the background, like writing down the names on everybody's business for everybody's business card, and then inputting them into a system until people figure out. Wait, people want that. The tech is where you get the scale, I think, right? But it's not where the idea comes from. I used to ask this question: like, does technology create the idea, or does the idea create the technology? You're smiling. Uh -huh. Well, it depends. Well, sometimes certainly the technology uh, creates the idea. Like take Google, for yeah. example. Yeah, 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 That's a prime example. Um, but most cases nowadays is like I would say 90% is business. But you said your first company imploded, right? So and the mm -hmm. dot-com bubble exploded in 2000, right? You had a problem with your own company. What, like, when did you become a better businessman? Do you know what I mean? Because you said like the universities in the U.S. are really good at not just teaching the technical skills around coding, but also the conversations around business. When did you feel like you're like, okay, I understand now? Mm, because now you've been at this for... Yeah, yeah. now I'm not really a tech dude anymore. I can fake it, but I'm not. But now you're a businessman. I'm a businessman. And you're yeah. a real bona fide businessman, I'm, right? So do you know what I mean? Yeah. So I think that happens gradually. So after... Um, so I, I worked a couple of years to, for Kayak, then I, I could have relocated to the US, I decided I don't want to. So I came back to Europe, I did uh, some interims management gigs for some VC companies, so interim CTO uh, for some companies. Got it. And there I learned a lot, because like you're only deployed as an interim CTO if the 
if the company is in the deep shit, right. yeah, otherwise they wouldn't need you. Right. Um, so I learned a lot more about people and about business. But honestly, I learned it when I came to Asia only like seven years ago. Be really? Yeah, because or eight years ago, because before I was the CTO and I had my co-founders. And so I was just laser focused on the tech. And like eight years ago at NFQ in Europe, um, we, I left my last startup, uh, Interims uh, gig, and I came back. And our, my co-founder Wolfgang said, hey, why don't you take care of NFQ? And uh, the very first time I, I uh, become, became an employee of NFQ. So I, I actually looked, I, I kind of restructured and worked on the company. And Lithuania is an amazing country. We are like a big fish in a small pond. How many people were working with NFQ then? In uh, 180. 180, and, but in Lithuania, it's only 3 million citizens, so yeah, it's a fairly it's a small lot. country. It's a lot of people, and they're all Lithuanian, so it wasn't like you were importing no, most no. of the people from somewhere else. No, all Lithuanians, because uh, I don't need Whatever, this. yeah, it doesn't matter. I'm just yeah, curious, yeah. yeah. So, so when I realized that we need to, we, we actually need to build, uh, we need to branch out and go somewhere else, and my co-founder said... Wait a second, though, that, you can't just let that ride. You know, we need to branch out. Like, yeah. what was the reason why you thought that? Because you need to go where the talent is, yeah? You can't just, like, be in a country and say, like, oh, yeah, we're going to attract everybody and build everything around 3 million people. Right, so you learn this by actually coming into the company, looking around and just, like, taking stock. Because you were saying before you were interim C CTO in a bunch of different places, you weren't really running NFQ before this, right? Correct. So now that you're inside of it, you're like, huh. Maybe we should rethink some of this. Absolutely. Go ahead. So my co-founder said, like, why not go to Belarus or Ukraine? And luckily, I said, no, thank you. <laughs> and why? Yeah, I mean, good for you. But uh, Honestly, honest answer, not yet another Eastern European country because Lithuania is really um, um, amazing in exactly two months a year. And the rest is pretty cold and yeah. dark. Yeah, you know, it's so funny because I have Lithuanian friends in Bangkok three guys that are building this company called whatnot doesn't matter and for the first time a few months ago i actually looked on the map because in my mind i had an idea of like where lithuania was and i was completely wrong it's way up here it is yeah, yeah it's gotta be freezing cold there all the time sorry yeah i had i, had, I remember actually uh walking to a rammstein concert with my with my ex-wife in the winter and she was like something is wrong with my eyes because I can't open my eyes, and actually, from her breath, she had ice. Uh, yeah, it's cold. Ice, yeah, so she couldn't really open her eyes, and it was crazy cold. That's cold. Yeah, that's oh, really cold. Okay, so you made the decision not to go to Belarus yeah. in Ukraine. Yeah, and at this time, I had a friend working here for Microsoft Singapore, and he said, uh, he said, like, dude, you need to come over. This is where the future is. For sure, I have been uh, in Asia for holiday, but I've sure. never been professionally. So I came. Here, um, I attended Echelon conference. I attended. You went to Echelon. Yeah. When? Uh, Do you remember? Eight years ago. Eight years ago, I was even on stage, and Tech in Asia also. So and I, I mean, was, I was at all of them, and I was actually moderating some stuff. It's weird yeah. that we hadn't met. Go ahead. Uh, well, maybe we have met. Maybe we, we, we just didn't know. We just forgot because we were old. <laughs> <laughs> that wouldn't be why. Go ahead. Um, so. Um, and I was blown away. I remember the tech in Asia. They had some startup pitch contest, which was like a, like a rock concert, you know? Yeah, Thousands of people there on this big stage and then da-da-da-da and big spotlights. And I was like, wow, holy shit. Did that surprise you? Very much so. Yeah. Very much so. Yeah. So, so I quickly realized, okay, this is the place to be. So, and then, well, obviously Singapore is not a place to find a lot of developers, so yeah, but not only that, it's another country with just six million people. In yeah, it exactly. Seven. It's small, right? And expensive. I mean, insanely. Yeah. Expensive. So if you want to resell software developers, you, they shouldn't idea. be more expensive than the ones back home where <laughs> no, your clients it's a bad are. Idea. Yeah, it's a bad idea. <laughs> Go ahead. So, so I went to Thailand because Thailand is what what as a German they do really good marketing, what people know. Right. Um, and I. I you know, I'm very well connected to Rocket Internet and the whole Rocket Internet universe. So, I didn't know that. So there are a lot of Rocket Internet 
startups and ex-rocket internet people all around Asia. So I yeah. had access to a, to a large base, a foundation of founders. And I met a lot of people and interviewed them. And I quickly learned that Thailand is also not the place to, to grow a large force eight years ago, a large force of software yeah. engineers. Yeah, probably still today. I live in Thailand. I can say whatever I want. But it's probably maybe different today. But back then, for sure, yeah. was not the place to build a big development so, shop. So what I did is I scouted for one year all over Southeast Asia. You did. Indonesia, Philippines, mm -hmm. even Myanmar. And I really spent a lot of time there uh, talking to the founders. And I realized somehow, yeah, all the places could work, but they all have pros and cons. And Vietnam was at the end of my list. I don't know why. I think back in the days they were just really not good in marketing so vietnam you mean yeah vietnam yeah. so it was on my list but it was really on the last place so i i went to vietnam and i was like wow this is the place this is the place so did that also surprise you because i think you're right thailand has this great marketing machine not for saying you should set up your technology here But for many other reasons, right? There's a great reason to go to Thailand for tourism. Everybody in the world knows, right? Great beaches, great food, inexpensive. People are nice, like all this kind of stuff, right? They do a super job at advertising for that. But Vietnam, very little, right? And yet the techno technological education in Vietnam is super good. And I learned, this is probably six or seven years ago, through my connections in Japan, right? Because I lived in Japan for 20-something years. So I would talk to Japanese venture capitalists and I would talk to Japanese company owners and they would say, yeah, I've got a hundred developers in Vietnam. And I was as surprised, I think, as you are. Yeah. I mean, let me just pick something you said because you, you said um, the, the technology, the, the education is important. It is kind of, um, but this is only on the second place. The first place is always attitude. I'm a big fan of servant leadership uh, and experience is important, but attitude is a lot more important than experience. So dig deeper there for me. Yeah. So the, the thing is, you need to, I mean, I mean, learning to code is, is just, it's just, it takes time and you can learn it. But if you are hungry and you want to learn and you want to grow, you will learn. If you're not hungry, if you're lazy, And relaxed, you won't learn well. And this is what I found in Vietnam. These people are hungry. And they're very different compared to all other Asian countries, where most other Asian countries are a little bit more laid back in various degrees. The Vietnamese are not laid back. They're really, really tough and hungry and hustling and working very hard their ass off to be successful. Yeah, and I don't think in retrospect it should be that surprising to people. If you watched what happened there in the 60s and early 70s, this is an insanely resilient group of people, no? They are. I mean, they're the only uh, country in the world who gave the Americans a bloody nose, the French, right. the Chinese, the Japanese. I mean, it's crazy. Yeah, I mean, they literally just said, like, bring it on. Yeah. Like, just bring it on because we don't care and we're not going away and we kind of don't care what you do. Yeah, yeah we're just not going away. But to see that then manifest itself today in what you do is actually kind of fascinating, no? It is, it is. For me, it's one of the most fascinating countries uh, on earth and especially in Asia. I mean, they're all great countries here. But For Vietnam, sure. from their potential, is there's so much more to come out of Vietnam. How many people do you have in Vietnam now? So now we're 400 in, in Asia. Yeah. And is there still a team in Lithuania? Oh, yeah. yeah. And globally, we are nearly a thousand. Wow. And are you managing all those teams? No, now? I'm only managing Asia. You are? Okay. Yeah. A thousand people. Yeah. I mean, I, you have to ask, at least I have to ask this question. When, when your company, and again, your words, right, like imploded during the dot-com bubble bursting in 2000, did you think you'd have a thousand people globally working with you? Because now you're getting away from this idea of, I don't know how to run a business. Into, We kind of joked about it earlier, right? But now mm -hmm. you're like a real businessman. Yeah, well, one of the things I told you in the beginning that I really like to prove myself. And so when I came to Asia, I literally came completely alone. There was nobody. And I, 
I knew, okay, I'm like, okay, I'm the CDO, but now I want to prove also my other co-founders that I can do it myself. So I had to understand what a P&L is, how accounting works and how business is done. And I really, really deep, deep dived into that. Um, and for me, this is like my one of my biggest personal successes that I proved myself I can do it alone. But how, like, look, I worked in big companies my whole life, right? And they're pretty terrible at teaching you how business works. They're pretty great at telling you how tasks work, right? Do this task, do three more tasks, manage those tasks, right? And until you become much more senior, they're not really telling you how the business works at all. How do you figure that out? It's a real question, right? Like, I'm running my own business as well. And I've had to really struggle to figure out how to get from here to here. And this is the part that's always hardest for me. I don't know if it makes sense. The idea is you want to grow something, right? But you've got to like figure out how to do this part first. But then you hit the wall and you're like, okay, I've done enough here. I've scaled as much as I can. And then you've got to climb a wall, I feel like. And it's when you're climbing that wall, at least for me, that's the hardest part. But once you climb the wall and get over that cliff, then you can kind of not coast, but like move to the right a little bit and then hit another wall, right? So it's not just like up and to the right. I feel like it's more of step changes. Does that make sense or, no, am, I just, or am I just wrong? No, 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 you're right. It's not only steps, you must sometimes go also backwards. Sure, 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 sure. I'm simplifying because otherwise we could be here for hours. But you know, yeah, I mean, it's a lot of this, right? Yeah. But just over time, it's less of this and more of, oh gosh, okay, I think I got it now. I want to do more kind of thing. Well, okay, so one of my core beliefs is that a good entrepreneur and founder is lazy. And because if you try to do everything yourself, uh, you're going to micromanage and you will never scale. I'm pretty good with emotional intelligence and can relate to people and understand their motivations. And I think the key for my success so far is that I found really, really great people um, who I'm working with who could help me to bring the company forward and who also could supplement my shortcomings. That makes sense. But when you start getting it to scale, right? Like that's relatively, and I always, I always have to put the word relatively in there so people understand nothing's easy, right? But it's relatively easy to do when you've got five or 10 or 15 people. But how do you understand how to use your EQ effectively when you're managing 400 people in Asia? Good question. Well, so for me, uh, to share a little bit more. So before I came to Asia, I right. also had the, uh, an offer to join a very, very big uh, German corporate, uh, 60,000 employee, and they asked me to be wow. on the board, Right. which is very like... Yeah, it's very prestigious. It's yeah. yeah, it's super cool in a way, right? Absolutely. And I really I really negotiated long and talked with them long, but then I decided against to to be very very independent in uh, and come to Asia. Why did you say no? Um cuz you thought if you were negotiating for a long time, you were seriously thinking about it. It wasn't cuz if someone came to me today and said, "We want you to be on the board of directors for a 60,000 person company and do this thing." I would just say no. Because I, I don't think I'm, I'm qualified to do it. But you thought about it, right? What, yeah. was, what was the no in the end? I think it's, it's, it's a, like uh, how much energy and how much uh, you need to put in and what the potential reward is. Yeah, uh, For sure, for corporate life, you get a really, really nice, decent salary. But you, that, that's it. You're still a salary man. Right. So, and there is no hockey stick. There's no, no. There's no nothing at the end. And... As I said, like we exited to kayak, so so I wasn't rich, but at least my pension was safe. So I was in a in a in a nice position. Still have to work though, and um, and for me it was more like, okay, now uh, I need to excuse myself because you told me I need to um, uh, just to 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 repeat what you said that I shouldn't swear. Not so much. Yeah, not so much, <laughs> but it's impossible. So there is. Um, there is this really great uh, movie, The Gambler. Go ahead. Uh, and um, I don't know, in, in The Gambler, I mean, the movie itself, in my opinion, is not the greatest, but there's a really, really important scene. This is where John Goodman explains the position of fuck you. And I, you can look it up on YouTube. It's really, really great. And the position of fuck you, as he described, is, is simply has 
have enough uh, money or passive income or right. a house that wherever or whenever somebody is coming to you and asking to do something you don't like, you just say, fuck you. Yeah. And that was my goal to achieve that. Because this is real freedom. Because what is money? Yeah. From a certain point, if you have no money, it's really, really bad. But having more and more money doesn't necessarily mean more happiness. There's a, I think there's a, and I don't know what the right terminology is for this, but there is some kind of tipping point where having just enough is actually better than having too much in the same way that having too little is really way worse, right, than having just enough as well, right? So if you've ever been broke, if you've ever woken up and said, oh, no, like how am I going to eat today without stealing somebody's pizza? That's bad. But you want to have, I feel like, enough, and I don't say money because it manifests itself in different ways, but you want to have enough resources so that you're comfortable and never afraid, right? And you also have the freedom, like you said, to say, fuck you, I'm doing whatever I want. Like, I know you want me to do that, but I don't have to do it, and I don't want to, so I'm not going to do it. Again, it's not to be mean to somebody. It's a freedom thing. It's a choice thing, yeah? Correct. But you can have too much money. I don't want $256 billion because then everybody knows I have $256 billion, and then I have to answer to them too. In a way, it's less freedom than just having like 70 million bucks. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and you're right. So I know billionaires. I know people who exited a startup, made billions, literally. And they got really, really in a bad place. The wife got scared of kidnappers. They yeah. had bodyguards suddenly. They can't relate to their friends anymore. You don't know who's a real friend who is only hanging around yep. because of your money. Yep. It, it's really bad. Um, I I agree, and I don't want that. So. Yeah, I mean, I'd rather give away a billion dollars than keep it, to be yeah. fair. But, and I've been there. So when my first... So I come from a very poor background. So when I was a student, I had this feeling that my fridge was empty and I didn't have money for buying something. Right. And when my first startup went bust um i had a like as a german cars are really important yeah for right. germans sure. as you know so i had a when i had my startup i had a i had a big badass uh chevrolet tahoe which is very unusual in 2000 in in germany yeah um and i had it pimped uh and was like really really a crazy car and i had to sell it yeah and i got a used toyota corolla it was like the worst car ever but it was like the I don't know, the the reality reflecting my money. Yeah, I mean, look, when I left Japan, I left right after the earthquake in 2011 and the economy completely went into the shit, right? And I had purchased a year before a Cayenne. And I think it was like one hundred and fifty or $160,000. And I remember back then some of my friends were like, what are you doing? I was like, I wanted a nice car. But after the earthquake, like you couldn't sell it for love or money. But I was moving to Thailand for other reasons, right? And I had to sell it. I think I sold it for like $15,000 or some stupid amount of money, right? That's horrible. You made someone very happy. Yeah, somebody very happy. They still owe me five grand, by the way, because they never paid for me all the money. But that's a different story altogether. But it is important to note that idea of like having nothing, but also having too much, yeah? I think. Yeah. And where does business stand now? So the interesting thing is uh, scaling a company is, is a very interesting journey. So I've been there in my old companies, you know, you go, like Ray Hoffman for, uh, said it once, he compared the stages, like your family, a tribe, a village, a city. Um, and I think uh, I've been there a couple of times where you scale a company until like 100 employees. Um, now we, I'm like in unknown territory. We are now nearly nearly 400, not yet, a little bit over extra, I think 390 something. Um, and I want to grow this to a thousand here in Asia, just because I want to see how it feels and what the processes, what the changes and how we can grow it and still keep our our startup soul, our entrepreneurial soul and be a cool, cool company. Are there enough people, because you talked about it in Lithuania, right? You had... I can't remember three, four hundred people there. I can't remember the number in a country with three million people. So you were kind of limited, right, at some point to the number of people you could hire just because of the size of the population there. Mm -hmm. Do you run up against limits in Vietnam? 
Well, no, there are, there are enough talent. It's more like the competition. A lot of American startups, they go to Vietnam and they're like, oh, I got... They hire from California. Oh, they do, yeah. But no, 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 I'm saying they, they're in California building businesses. And I know I've spoken to a couple of startup guys and gals that have teams in Vietnam. So they're not working with companies like yours. They're building their own teams as oh, well. Yeah. That's oh, what yeah. I mean. Oh yeah, they do. They do, and they're like a hundred grand. That's cheap, yeah, which is massively overpaying, yeah. So that's difficult. Um, I mean, this is part of my business. So my business is actually building building teams, and then later the teams can be acquired, yeah. So these American startups, that's the advertorial part, right. would be better off to talk to me. But for sure, um, that's that's my competition, and. What is also important, a very big part is the entrepreneurial spirit of the Vietnamese themselves because they all do startups on their side. They do though, right? They do, all of them. So they're building their own products as well mm. while they're building your product. And this is what's interesting too. This gets to kind of the grittiness and the hardworking character there, right? Because they will spend all day doing their job that you're paying them to do and then at night go and build their own products. Correct. Which is fucking tiring. It is, yeah. Excuse is. my language. It is. So what's your view on this, though? You have a well-funded company in the United States called Turing, right? Obviously named after Alan Turing. And their idea is it's way too expensive to hire developers in the United States. And if you're a Silicon Valley company, you can spend $250,000, like you said, hiring a senior developer or manager, or 225, whatever it is. Or we can hire a team in Bangladesh, in Sri Lanka, in India, or in Vietnam at a third the price or less yeah uh, let, let me just finish let me just finish the question yeah and you can correct me when when i'm done my what i my question to you is this is when does that revert to the mean and if it does does the salaries in the u.s go down as the ones in vietnam as a proxy go up or do the ones in vietnam just go up and match do you know what i mean yeah certainly um i think it's a limited scalable model um, reason being is simply that um, these companies, they try to hire really, really good software engineers. Yeah. And um, then they source them for American startups. So, But to be a really good start, uh, so they're searching for really good software engineers who are happy to work remote alone and uh, speak very good English. And the thing is, if these three points are true even the Vietnamese uh, engineer can easily make 10 grand or more as a freelancer so why would they work for a company because they will not pay them 120 or 150 grand or if they would then suddenly it's not that cheap anymore right so this is why I wanted to talk about this right because on its face it feels like a great idea it's a very well-funded company now I actually think they announced some fundraising at the end of last year and I was like really because in, for my money, I think you're right. Once a person is identified as a great developer, if they're that good, well, they'll just team up with three other guys and gals and build their own company. Yeah. So, so the key to success, and I have a very different approach. I, I deal daily with people who say, like, I want to five great, great engineers, everybody perfect English, everybody happy. And I'm like, no, I'm not going to give them to you because, first of all, they're limited. They're not so many. Right. Yeah. And second, I strongly believe in a team spirit. I rather build a team which works like a well-oiled machine that delivers whatever the needs are. Because as a team, you have a couple of advantages. First of all, you can have some of these good engineers, but then you can also staff some medium-level people who might not speak well English uh, in the team. Second, you create a really good team spirit because one of the very important reasons what people keep what keeps people in a company is working with their friends. Yeah. So you need to create a culture around it. Um, so you have, you, you, you have, you're able to scale, you create a team. And the third is the Asian spirit. The Asian spirit of like not losing face, of uh, keeping up their promises, working the ass off as a team to deliver what they promised. You will never get that if you work with individuals all around the world. It's not the same. Maybe never is a strong word. I shouldn't use it. But it's very rarely and very difficult to create. Let's just say it's less likely. And this idea of being a mercenary, right, just for hire. I'm just for hire. I don't care. Whoever is different than being a missionary where you're working together with people that you love, like that you really care about. I remember 
when I left Morgan Stanley, and I essentially grew up, I'm putting it in quotes, right, at Morgan Stanley. I worked there for 10 or so years. All of my friends were there, and I really loved it. And when I left, I felt untethered. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. You know what I mean, though, right? Yeah. I felt untethered. And I always wondered what would have happened if I just stayed there and worked with my friends who stayed there much longer than I did, and their careers just you know, went up and up. And it wasn't like my career was bad, but it was now on my own. And replicating that was almost impossible. It, absolutely. I mean, we're just... So in Vietnam, we're now... I'm quite proud. We are like the fifth year in a row amongst the top 10 best places to work in IT in all over Vietnam, which is a great achievement. Right. Because there are companies like Grab and others who, yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, who really, really have a lot of money. Um, and the question is, what makes us different? And I, we try to stay human and see the individual. Um, and... Then the second thing is, as I said, like we're talking to our people. We want to do remote work, but how can remote work work? And the interesting thing is that our employees say, yeah, they want to do remote work, but the most important thing for them is to work with their friends. Yeah, yeah. And people always think like, yeah, I can get 100 uh, remote worker all around the planet and I can create a great culture. And some companies can do that, GitHub and others who have big brands, they can attract these people, but it, if you're not GitHub, if you are someone nobody knows, it's really difficult to make this happen. You've mentioned in a bunch of different cases, and I'll let you go when, when this part of the conversation is over, because we've been at this for a while and I feel like we could just keep going. But you've mentioned all these little philosophies that you have, right? And all of them have been different, right? So you have this overall overriding philosophy about how to do work and how to build a business, and how to treat people. Does any of this come from, you said your dad and your grandfather were both really good businessmen, right? Does any of this emanate from like conversations you heard at the, around the dinner table? Is, was there any osmosis you know, of this idea? Or was all of this built up over time just based on your own experience of kind of how would I want to be treated, and what would make me the most effective? Yeah, the latter. Um, it's more like I really... So... In a nutshell, I'm I'm a little bit of a spiritual person. I believe in karma. Yeah. Uh, and I I also support people. I try to give because I always believe it comes back. And if not, it's also okay. I want to work. I believe, strongly believe that we spend eight or ten hours a day at work. And there is a really only one, one currency in life which matters, which is time. Yeah, because it's the only thing you can't get back and you can't make it. Correct, yeah, and time will spend. So it's too much time to spend with something I'm not happy to do or with people I don't like, quite simple. So my philosophy is is a little bit complex, but it boils down to don't be an asshole. Yeah. <laughs> um, I try to not be an asshole and also I just come from an all-hands meeting uh, last week uh, in my company, we had uh, again explained that like uh, this is like my expectations. We have a lot of different individuals, and when you have a couple of hundred people, not everybody gets along with everybody. It's very right. normal. Yeah. But you still can treat people decent and respectful, and don't be an asshole. Yeah. Look, I think that's the way I want to end this conversation. I really appreciate your time, Lars Jankowski, the founder of NFQ Asia. That was awesome. Thank you for being here. <laughs>